everyone. It's Mark Stenson, and you found our podcast, Unlocking Your World of Creativity. This is the podcast where we talk to leading creative talent all over the world to give you inspiration you can use for your own creative projects and really the ideas and connections and opportunities to produce your creative work and get it out into the world. We're talking today with Nicholas End. He's a professor at Christiana University College in Norway. It's great to have you with us, Nicholas. Thank you. It's very nice to be here, too. Unlocking your world of creativity with Mark Stinson. Nicholas End, you really bridge the gaps between a theoretical, what I would call the university professor approach to creativity and the practical application of what does this all mean in business and in commerce. And I, and I really like that you overlap those two things. Yeah, well, for a long time, I was a, a practitioner. So I had 30 years of being a design consultant, a branding consultant. So I worked with this for a long time. Then I had the urge to do a PhD no particularly good reason, just than I thought it would be fun to do, actually. And that sort of led me to becoming an academic. So I've made a transition from one to the other, but I think I have a sort of a foot in both camps, as it were. So I always like to start off our uh, podcast by asking, you know, is there a creative project, I mean, on your desk right now, on your desktop, that, you know, it's coming to the end of your day there in Oslo? What have you been working on these days? I'm part of a sort of um, collective uh, think tank called Meddinger, which is an organization that works to try and encourage brand owners to think about their responsibility, uh, not only to customers, but also to their other stakeholders and to society. Uh, And we're working on this at the moment, and there's a big event that happens in a couple of weeks' time in Amsterdam, uh, and Rotterdam, which is Dutch Design Week, and we're putting together a virtual event for that. And that's quite challenging because normally we would do these things live. So then we know the sort of parameters of how you do. For example, one of my colleagues in that group uh, has developed a concept called music thinking, which is a derivation from uh, a design thinking process. So it's using, he comes from a musical background, so he has this sort of musical inspiration to try and develop new ways of looking at things. And of course, when we've done that live, that's one thing. But now we're heading into virtual rooms to try and try and do these things. And that presents, I think, a whole load of uh, challenges, uh, maybe some opportunities as well, because we can bring people in from more diverse backgrounds. And in terms of geography, we can bring people from further afield. But it also makes it more difficult to uh, realize things in the same way. I think a lot of times when you're doing stuff face to face, I mean, it's the important ability to be able to read people's body language, to really listen, to empathize and Even when you do stuff on Zoom or you use Miro uh, whiteboards, you still have this sort of, uh, this slightly disassociated from the reality of of talking and meeting people. So I think that's the challenge with doing this online, which is where, of course, we're all heading at the moment. Yeah, not much option for that (laughs) right now. I'm also curious for your own creative inspiration. You know, when when you feel a little dry and you need a creative spark, what's your go-to practice? You know, where where do you derive some new, fresh ideas? makes me sound very academic when I do this. There's a writer called Kleist who wrote something back in 1805, which has the catchy title on the gradual production of thoughts whilst something, I can't remember. It was, it's, it's not very exciting really. But he says this phrase, l'idée vient en parlant. He's German, but he says it in French. But um, 
so it's the idea comes as you talk. And I think sometimes, you know, I sit in front of my uh, laptop trying to puzzle out issues and trying to think things in different ways. But actually, what you just need to go out, break away from that sort of um, rigid way of thinking about things and just to go and talk to people and explore. And Kleist says, don't sit in your room, go down to a bar and have a drink and have a chat to people. Yeah, I think it's very liberating if you sit and talk and explore together with others. Of course, you know, it can be very valuable to have that intense period of thinking by yourself. But I think you um, realize new ways of seeing things when you do it with other other people. And especially if you have people from nice, diverse sort of backgrounds that uh, give you a different way of seeing things. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. How many times have you found, I mean, I do, you have this perfectly formed idea in your head and you think it's totally foolproof. And then you try to articulate it even to a friend, you know, who would who would be supportive and understanding of your uh, bumps and grinds of the story. And you realize I, this idea is not even begun to hatch. No. And I sort of feel that sometimes, uh, you know, when you when you're when you're teaching, it's also interesting because, of course, you have to develop a, a lecture and you're going to talk. But I found this last week I was doing teaching a course online and then people sort of suddenly as you're talking about it, you think uh, actually there's another way of seeing this. And then people ask you questions and you're sort of ideas shift because of it so i guess you're meant to as a lecturer you sort of have this perception you ought to know the answers but it's quite good to be a bit naive and recognize you don't have all the answers and you can learn a lot i think from the the process of articulating and sharing ideas and getting feedback from others so i think it's a very good thing to do to be a bit to be open as long as you can when you're when you're working with ideas and not to close it down too much as you say, sometimes you think you've been so clever and got the answer and then you present it to someone else and they pull, pull it apart and you realise you haven't at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's one of the things about creativity is about a willingness to be vulnerable to others. Say more about that. We've done research before um, looking at sort of creativity in online communities and in, in groups. And I think what we've seen from the research is that creativity seems to, of course, this is difficult to to measure, but the creativity seems to grow over time. And it grows because people begin to trust each other. And I think a lot of what happens in um, ordinary processes is you don't allow enough time. So you stick people together and you say, we're going to do a couple of hours in a workshop, we're going to solve this problem and a lot of that sort of few hours is spent sort of getting to know each other socially and feeling comfortable with each other in a way you need to move beyond that sort of social connection into looking at things in a more perhaps deep way Uh, but that can only happen once you've built a confidence in others and you're willing to perhaps make ridiculous or outlandish suggestions which only I think feel comfortable doing if you trust the other people in the group. The sort of pushing the boundaries, seeing things in new ways, you need to take the time to do that. So that's, I think, part of the, the key part of the process. Nicholas, I was reading uh, a recent article that uh, you had posted on kind of a shift in generations and generational thinking from this idea of me to a we, you know, and I know that has a lot of business and social implications. And I hope you would break that down for us a little bit and tell us more about that. Questionable whether everyone would agree with me. Of course. <laughs> well, that's uh, why we call it a point of view. <laughs> <laughs> I think sort of COVID has accelerated this, that brought home our connectedness to others. I mean, my well-being is connected to the well-being of those I work with, I live with, that uh, you meet in the street that you see socially. So 
that's about sort of a basic responsibility to each other. But I think what was impressive were these very sort of uh, personal and sometimes very emotional narratives about how people have been so supportive of each other in this crisis. And it's not to say there has been, there hasn't been sort of a backlash against that because people have said, you know, this, you know, this is about me. I need to express myself. So we also get a pushback against it. But I think there's been a, I sense there's been a general move to a sort of sense of we're all in this together and we need to solve this together. And I think that's been very, um, I think that's been a productive sort of side effect of COVID. It's reminded us of our common responsibilities to each other. I also think that comes through in the way that at least some businesses have thought about their their work. There's been this sort of big talk about a transition from a shareholder primacy to a sort of stakeholder point of view. And that was that was sort of being talked about a lot just immediately prior to the crisis. So World Economic Forum in the US, the Business Roundtable, sort of recognizing the interrelationship between your, your customers, your investors, the uh, citizens uh, of a society. Increasingly, organizations are buying into that principle. Although, like we might see for some, uh, there's rhetoric and then there's action, and they're not always perfectly aligned. I mean, some organizations have been saying, yes, we agree with this, and then doing exactly the opposite. But I think there's been that transition to recognizing the sort of mutual connectedness of the different stakeholders in an organization. And that's also reflected in society as a whole. And I think that's a very positive transition because I think it's important for businesses to maintain their relevance in the future. If businesses are just about benefiting shareholders, then I think it diminishes relevance to to society. And I think increasingly consumers and citizens are expecting businesses to take on these roles. They want them to take a stance and they want them to have a view on the world and to support uh, these broader initiatives. And maybe that's also connected sometimes when governments retreating from responsibility in some of these things. Very interesting. I like how you say consumers and citizens. The blur of those lines these days, you, you simply aren't going into the store and buying a product anymore, are you? No, not at all. And of course, uh, yeah, it makes it, when I say consumers and citizens, it makes them sound like they're two completely separate groups. But uh, of course, uh, we are multiple things at the same time. I know from retailers, they're under pressure from consumers to demonstrate their broader responsibility. And also, as a consequence of that, I mean, you see some retailers saying, you know, we just won't do business with organizations that don't play by these rules. People like Walmart in the US, a big department store in the UK, Selfridges, these sorts of organizations are saying, these are the ways that we work. We see this as a broader responsibility. We expect you to adhere to these same principles. So there's pressure along the line. And it's, I think consumers are becoming more activist in the way Again, we can see a gap between rhetoric and action. But I think consumers are genuinely becoming more activists in the way they think about things. And we can see this in sort of the way that Nike responded to issues of social justice and its campaign with Colin Kaepernick, that they were willing to take a stance on an issue which was inevitably sort of polarizing. Some consumers, stroke citizens, were very much uh, supportive of the principle, whereas others said, you know, I'm burning my Nike shoes. I think it's becoming more difficult for organizations to avoid taking a stance. I mean, I think they have to be part of these processes. And, you know, at a university level, you're part of a group within the school of technology and innovation. You know, yes, it's economic. But I'm very curious of this implications of this creative point of view on innovation. 
where does that thinking lead us into new innovative models, new innovative products? What are your thoughts there? I think organizations are often very good at practicing creativity in pockets. And I guess, you know, if you look at a consultancy like IDO and the way it's built uh, its business around the, the idea of design thinking, I think the design thinking sort of methodology they promoted is at least in part an attempt to get their, their clients to think more like them. So it's about encouraging businesses to be more creative in the way they, they do things. I can often see is, you know, you do, you do workshops with clients and design thinking sessions, creative sessions, and you generate sort of, uh, you might brainstorm a lot of ideas, you might do some fast prototypes, you can do some interesting things, and, um, and then you hit the um, rationality of the organization. And that's where I think you then begin to get the the problem because the organization doesn't necessarily think in the same sort of way. The question is, how do you then help to transform the organization so you can implement ideas? There was a very good television series years ago by a a well-known product design company in the UK. What they did this, I think it was sort of six parts, they took on various challenges like redesigning a a toilet and redesigning a motorbike. And so they did these sort of things. what was interesting was the processes were fascinating to observe and the sort of the creative process itself and how it led to a solution and then the ideas never get implemented because the you know the commissioning organizations say yeah we didn't want anything as radical as that we just expected something a bit to you know if you could change the color here and move the plug there that would be yeah that's enough for us thank you yeah i think you can sort of sense that Organizations want to be creative, they want to be innovative, but there are also barriers in organizations that prevent it really happening. And I think one of the ways around that is to make sure you involve key people inside the organization as actively as you can in the processes. Don't leave them on the outside to be the recipients of an idea, which they then say, no, it doesn't fit, but actually get them involved in the process through, uh, through the various stages of development. I think that's one thing. I think also I've had the experience here with a company in Norway, big multinational organization, which also is encouraging a lot of digital innovations. But the digital innovations have a completely different sort of uh, approach to the mainstream business. So the mainstream business is all about being highly considered, making the business case, doing lots of research, evaluating the legal implications. And the digital businesses are all about do it and see if it works and let's change if it doesn't and we'll adapt and we'll flow and we'll start with a brand here and now. And the, the legal people absolutely horrified at this whole process. <laughs> you can't often do stuff, you know, it has to go through the systems. And so you get this sort of tension between the desire for sort of, if you like, creative, fast moving and the rationality, bureaucracy of the organization. So I think that's the real challenge is... Um, is the implementation aspect, actually. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess uh, we always try to help our listeners overcome that because people say, I have this great idea, but then I've run into all these roadblocks. Sometimes excuses, well, I didn't have enough this, I didn't have enough that. But sometimes real fundamental structural challenges. And it sounds like one idea is to involve the stakeholders more. What are some other ways people can push through some of these obstacles to execute more of their innovative thinking? 
Um, I think another thing is making sure about business relevance. So if you can relate your ideas strategically back to what the organization is trying to do or the specific area of a business unit, I think you have a much better chance of uh, success. I went last year to talk to SAP, a German sort of software company, but I went to talk to their um, co-innovation lab in Silicon Valley. I was rather interested in the way that they actually have built those sort of co-innovation processes. And partly that's because they have a very clear idea about what they're trying to do but it's also because they make sure they tailor those innovation processes to the interests of the different business units and involve them in developing the ideas and I think that sense of involvement is important as I said earlier but I think it's also there's a demonstrable business benefit that comes out of that and I think you can see that in other companies that they they will focus in on the sort of uh, the core things and that's not to say you shouldn't have also those big ideas but like Google with uh, what they do. I mean, they have business relevant innovations and then they have the the long term, much more adventurous, wilder. (laughs) Way out there. Yeah. Yeah. Which you push out to limits. I think one of the interesting things thinking about this is, is whether when you're doing this sort of innovation, it should be rooted in the corporate core or whether it should be hived off into an innovation lab. And see companies do this both ways. It's culturally determined which is the most effective. Sometimes the, the corporate headquarters is, is too much weight and you'll never do anything innovative if you're, you're stuck under the nose of uh, all the bureaucracy. But if you can sometimes then hive it off and see an organization as well where those open innovation labs are co-located in startup spaces and that gives them the sort of freedom to experiment. I remember also interviewing someone at BMW's innovation lab again in Silicon Valley and he said you know my boss said go away and do this do things we could never do in Munich and just surprise us. Yes, that's a, that's a great call to action. Yeah. I'm also thinking about the implications of this to maybe the individual creative artist types. You know, you're, you're talking a lot about collaboration and mm. getting teams involved and workshops. I guess I also think about this myth of the individual creator, you know, the painter in the basement doing the artwork, the musician on the living room floor trying to write a song, the novelist at the kitchen table trying to type out the next great American novel. Where does that leave the individual artist? How, how can they collaborate better? Yeah, I mean, it's an inter- I mean, there is a whole work done by um, Mahali, whose name I can never pronounce, surname I can never pronounce, but uh, who wrote this book on flow, where he sort of analyzed the sort of uh, creativity of all these uh, individual people. And uh, I think there's, uh, of course, I, I talk a lot about collective creativity because I think that's what happens in organizations uh, most of the time. It is a sort of collective process. It has to be. But I think also when we look at individual artists, I think there's a requirement or there is a value and a benefit, I should say, in terms of them being well connected. And the people I've interviewed when I've done uh, writing about this, I think what's interesting is how aware they are of the world around them. Mm. I mean, we might have uh, the, um, the isolated genius sitting uh, sitting alone, but certainly the people I've talked to, you get a sense they're very socially connected. They're very aware of the the context of what they're doing. So they understand they're an artist and they're, they're working with an idea, the connections back in, into art history, and they understand the sort of social connectedness of what they're doing. So I guess it can be a, a solo effort, but it's also, uh, I think, about absorbing the world 
around you. And again, maybe it's a case of you have to go out to bars and restaurants and chat to people. Maybe we're doing that online these days. But I think it's being socially connected and, and getting the inspiration from others. And we're always building on other ideas. Uh, we don't sort of reach it with completely naive, open minds. We always bring some baggage uh, with us, some of our connectivity, and that steers us in one direction or another. And we may and try and hold that back and try and have a value in sort of being a bit naive about the world, a bit questioning about it, but we can never escape the fact we're sort of already connected to the world around us. And I think that connection generally is very good for us in terms of spurring us to think in uh, new ways. And as well as conversation, it can also, as they be looking at other writers' work or other artists' work, it's the inspiration of others. I think as well. Oh, that's terrific. I know I benefit from a conversation just like this. Again, you think, well, you know, I have a lot of ideas. I've got a lot of connections. And then all of a sudden I make a new friend like yourself and new ideas are sparked and, uh, you know, you can take it in new directions. Even the new connections this might lead to, right? Yes. And uh, it might be the case that, you know, um, two thirds of what I say is absolutely <laughs> of no interest at all. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I doubt but that. Maybe, just maybe, uh, there's a sentence or a two or something that just stops you and you, you think things in a different way. And I think that's where the value comes. That's that, that, that is a very good point, is, is sort of to be open to the whole message because there may be a, a nugget just for you in there yeah, somewhere. I hope right? one. Well, with that in mind, your CV lists dozens of uh, not only scholarly journal articles, but trade articles and guide us to a couple of books or articles that you would like us to hear more about your viewpoints on some of these things. Well, I've just done a, a book which is called Co-Creating Brands, sort of exactly what we're talking about here. It's the, the principle of how you build a, a brand together with others. And those can be commercial brands or art museums or uh, medical brands. So whatever it is, the context. And then there's... Um, there's another book uh, called Brands with a Conscience, which I, I edited, connected to the Medinger Group and what we've been doing there. And that's a series of case studies looking at organizations that are very principled in the way they behave, try to be very fair and transparent in what they do, and really sort of meet those broader needs of society. So I think yeah, maybe those two books of the sort of recent ones I've, I've written are the, I say, most interesting. That's a, a value judgment on my part. I'm sure the other readers and reviewers agree. <laughs> I hope so. Oh, very good. Well, I just can't thank you enough for this. It's been a real, well, for me, even a creative catalyst of thinking, a couple of things that could take us in some new directions. So I really appreciate you sharing. Great. It was fun. Thank you very much. Well, our guest has been Nicholas End. He is not only a seasoned professional in the areas of marketing and branding, but also a professor at the Christiana University College in Oslo, Norway. So join us again next time and we'll get more ideas to stimulate our original creative thinking, but also some tools and ideas to organize those thoughts to then execute them and get them out into the world. Unlocking your world of creativity with Mark Stinson. Copyright 2020. I'm Mark Stinson. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or check out my website at www.mark.com. Hyphen Stinson.com.